0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Out front next, Trump cashes in asking supporters to chip in after the Colorado Supreme Court disqualified him from the ballot there. Trump's appeal to the Supreme Court is expected at any moment, as he also tries to use the Supreme Court to stall his January 6th federal case. All eyes on the highest court in the land tonight. Plus screams for help. There are new evidence showing GoPro footage of the three hostages that the Australian military shot and killed. At least one of the hostages could reportedly be heard crying for help. How did things go so terribly wrong? And RFK Jr. Keeping up his momentum in the polls in these weeks leading into the uh, primary season. His media strategy, the podcast circuit. And many of his supporters say that is what sucked them in. A special report. Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. And out front tonight, chip in. Donald Trump, those are the words, being sent out to supporters, doing everything he can to take advantage of Colorado's historic ruling, barring him from running in the state's primary. This fundraising ad appearing all over Trump's social media accounts, and it reposts every few hours. So they're getting deluged with it. It asks his supporters to, quote, chip in so Trump can stay on the ballot, trying to make this a mega money-making situation. The plea coming as his legal team is right now preparing to appeal the Colorado case to the Supreme Court, a move that will put the nine justices on the Supreme Court in the center of the 2024 election. And tonight, President Biden weighing in. Is Trump an insurrectionist, sir. Well, I think
2: certainly they're self-evident. You saw it all. Now whether the fourteenth amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. And no question about
1: it. None. Zero. Meanwhile, Republicans are calling out the Colorado court for they say trying to overrule voters.
3: Look, it's unfair. Uh, They're abusing power 100 percent.
4: The idea that judges are going to take it upon themselves to decide who can and can't be on the ballot is truly unthinkable.
5: This is a move on behalf of
0: the establishment in both parties that I think is hell bent to determine to say that Donald Trump should not be able to run and see this through.
3: I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court.
1: And and just to be clear there, if anybody was going to jump on this and take the other side, right, given what he feels about Trump being president, it would have been Chris Christie. But he didn't, saying the court should stay out of it. And the Supreme Court now will have a crucial ruling ahead on this. And this is not the only case that will play a role in history and this election. Today, Trump trying to stall Jack Smith's January 6th case with the Supreme Court, asking the highest court in the land to shoot down Smith's request to immediately rule on whether the case can move forward. And the Supreme Court is also facing a whole slew of other cases that could significantly impact the election, like a case on the validity of the law used to charge hundreds of people in connection with the January 6th riot, like a case on whether an abortion drug will be available, like a case on the scope of the Second Amendment. Not since Bush v. Gore in 2000 has the Supreme Court play- played such a pivotal role in an election. And frankly, when you list all of this and think about where we are now, that almost seems small and quaint, like a little... Hanging Chad by comparison. And there is drama on the Supreme Court over this precipitous moment and whether they can meet it. Pressure is building for Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from any case dealing with January 6th. That is because his wife and her efforts to overturn the 2020 election are relevant here. Shortly after the election, Ginny Thomas, his wife, was texting Trump's Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, one of the messages reading Help this great president stand firm, Mark! Three exclamation points. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. She also emailed John Eastman, of course, one of the architects behind Trump's attempt to overturn the election and the whole fake elector scheme. She was also at the January 6th Stop the Steal rally before the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And just last year, she told a House committee investigating January 6th, okay, get ready for this one. This is, I think, where it all comes to a head, that she still believes the 2020 election is stolen. She said that last year to the committee. And now her husband, the husband of an election denier could help decide the 2024 election. Evan Perez is out front live in Washington. And, Evan, you know, it is incredible. The Supreme Court, always important. Uh, in this moment, all roads leading right to those nine justices. And I know you have new reporting tonight on what the Trump team thinks is next uh, in the face of this historic Colorado ruling.
6: Well, Aaron, they're bracing for more of these uh, 14th Amendment challenges to spring up in other states there's been a number of them already as you know and all of them have failed really uh, until this one in Colorado we also saw saw one just recently filed in the state of Oregon and so that one is pending and so what we don't know is where these will happen next and that's what that's what has the Trump team uh, a lot more concerned because obviously they're having they're going to have to spend money to defend the, uh, the former president in multiple states that's a huge problem obviously it's a big uh, uh, financial issue uh, but one of the other things that we're, we're watching for is obviously when they go to the Supreme Court they have some time and we're told Alina uh, Train uh, one of our uh, correspondents who's uh, talking to the campaign yes. is told that there might be a few more days before we see that appeal to the su- Supreme Court they of course need to make that appeal they they have a few uh, things that they want to bring up including of course uh, the idea that there was not due process in this uh, in this case in Colorado uh, uh, but they have a few more days obviously Colorado Colorado has to certify its ballot by January 5th and of course that's when they vote is is actually in March the question is whether the Supreme Court will be able to address all of this in the next couple of months before voters in uh, primary voters in Colorado go to the go to the ballot boxes on March 5th Aaron.
1: all right thank you very much that really lays it out when you think about it I mean at some level I don't know, sometimes you think, oh, name off the ballot. You're thinking all the way out to next November. But no, because this affects the primaries for Colorado, that is in March. You've got printing deadlines, sending out absentee ballot deadlines, right? A time is of the essence. Every day matters. Ryan Goodman is with me now. The former special counsel at the Department of Defense. Steve Vladek, the professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law, joins us. And Van Jones, former special advisor to President Obama. So, Ryan, this is a huge moment for the Supreme Court. And I know I sort of was, uh, you know, being a little tongue in cheek with it makes <laughs> makes a 2000 look like a hanging Chad moment. But I mean, this is this is an incredibly historic moment.
7: It really is. I mean, these are gigantic cases that will define the future of the country in so many different ways. Will a former president be barred from running for office again because they were responsible for engaging in an insurrection? That's just enormous stakes. And then the other one is a big one as well. Are presidents of the United States immune from criminal trial for conduct that occurred while they were in office? That's the second big one that they have to decide and probably will be deciding these cases uh, early in the year.
1: Right. And, and, and so let's talk about the timing here, Steve, because as you've been looking at the court and, and how they seem to be responding here, do you have any indication? I guess there's two, two parts to this. Is there any question that they're going to take up these issues, the Colorado case and the immunity issue in January 6th, the Jack Smith uh, situation that Trump's trying to stall right now? And how quickly could these decisions actually occur?
8: Sure. I mean, Aaron, the the first question is the easier one. No. Um, I think no matter what, both the immunity question and the Section 3 disqualification question are going to be resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court, certainly between now and June. I think the question is how much faster. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, we could hear from the justices as early as the end of this week that they're going to either take up Jack Smith's expedited appeal in that case or that they're going to let the federal appeals court go first. Um, argument in the federal appeals court is tentatively scheduled as of now for January 9th, so that's still pretty quick. The Supreme Court, even if it doesn't step in now, could presumably hear that case by the end of January, early February. Yeah. You know, the Colorado case, Aaron, is a bit trickier because the Colorado Supreme Court stayed its own ruling. And that stay means Trump's name will be on the ballot so long as he files his appeal in the Supreme Court by January 4th. You know, I think the U.S. Supreme Court might take a little bit more time with that case, but a little bit more time probably just means January or February for the oral argument with a decision by March. Aaron, by the Supreme Court standards, that is lightning fast, um, and I think we've already seen a couple of very small tea leaf reading type signs that the justices are clearing out their calendars and making provisions to move pretty quickly on both of these cases. You know, once they're fully ready to go.
1: So. Van, one thing that's clearly happening now uh, is that, well, now the Trump GOP primary opponents seem to be aligned. They're rallying around him, right? You got Chris Christie on the same page as Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. I mean, what did it take to get us there? Well, there we are, all defending uh, Trump. Uh, you know, it, it, that that's the reality that we're seeing. It Trump fundraising off of it and in a big way, right? I mean, it just kept hitting your inbox today again and again and again. Yeah. So... <laughs> Was the Colorado decision actually good for Democrats? I mean, in the moment, I'm sure a lot of them were were celebrating. Uh, but but well, are they now? Uh,
9: people were happy uh, and hopeful that maybe something could happen that would impose some kind of accountability on a runaway train called Donald Trump that has done everything to trash our democracy, <clears throat> to trash our norms, uh, and seems to be possibly barreling back toward the White House. Um, now, the, the Republicans that you see rallying around him now, that's not new. In fact, if Mitch McConnell had just done his job, uh, the Republican uh, leader in the House, and convicted Trump for these political crimes, we wouldn't be here. But what happened is, the House impeached Trump for all this behavior, and Mitch McConnell didn't let the Senate convict him. Had that happened, he would have been disqualified the right way, but right. Po- through politics. Instead. It's dumped over into the court system, and now you got uh, criminal courts and civil courts and election officials and everybody trying to figure out a way to stop this guy. Uh, when the, uh, and the Republican Party standing strong, uh, they've been derelict in their duty as a party from the beginning, from, from the beginning of this whole uh, crisis.
1: Like a game of hot potato. Remember when Mitch McConnell said that, right? That Trump was guilty as he saw it, but put this to the courts. Hot potato. And yeah. now, and now, and now and here, now, we, here are. we are. And a now here we are. mess. And 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 we're also Ryan and Steve in the context of a court that has Clarence Thomas on it, whose wife, as I just laid out, Ginny Thomas, uh, was even as recently as last year denying the election and in contact with John Eastman and in contact with Mark Meadows and attending the Stop the Steal rally. And he has, at this point, shown no indication that he has any intent of recusing himself.
7: Yeah, I think that he should. I mean, just for the public interest in the fairness of the proceedings and to see the court as beyond reproach, Mm -hmm. his spouse is directly in communication with... John Eastman, a co-defendant for Donald Trump in the federal in the sorry, in this in the Georgia case, and also an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case. Right. She's in direct communication with Mark Meadows, who is a indicted co-conspirator in the Georgia case, and he's Maybe calling it the greatest witness.
1: heist of our history. I was just looking Absolutely. up what she was texting Mark Meadows. So she's Meadows, not just yeah. in
7: communication with him, but it's about the very core set of issues that are in these cases about trying to overturn yeah. the election for Donald Trump after the election was held. And she's very much supportive and she's pushing Meadows, in fact, into that space. Yeah. That would be the time that he would recuse himself. He has recused himself previously, but it was a case that was directly about the communications between her and John Eastman but this is a, a, a one of the piece of the same uh, puzzle. And I think that he, the right thing to do would be to do that. So
1: you're saying the should, it should, yes. Right thing to do, yes. From Ryan Goodman, Steve, will he?
7: Uh, no. And
8: I mean, we already have <laughs> at least one sign of that, Aaron. Um, you know, the the order that the court issued last week where the court agreed to expedite consideration of Jack Smith's petition for cert before judgment in the January 6th prosecution had no notation that he was recused. Um, And and I think what we really should do is take a step back and try to figure out what's the end game if you're the Supreme Court. I mean, if you're Chief Justice John Roberts, how do you navigate through this sticky wicket um, to get the court to a place where it still has credibility on the far side? Some of that's about whether Justice Thomas recuses, but Aaron, some of that's about, you know, is there a way to reach some kind of compromise? where you have justices appointed by presidents of both parties, justices from across the ideological spectrum, reaching some kind of consensus, much like a unanimous Supreme Court did back in 1974 in the Watergate-Tapes case. You know, I think that's the real question now for the Supreme Court. Now that they're not going to be able to avoid these issues, what are they going to do to keep the, the public faith that yeah. this is a judicial resolution and not just a partisan political one?
1: A very thoughtful answer. I also have to give you credit for getting a croquet analogy in, which is a rare thing indeed. Um, (laughs) Van, a final word to you. President Biden weighing on this, saying whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But then being very clear, unequivocal, he he supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. Is that the appropriate response from the sitting president?
9: Well, look, what he said is right. I mean, we all saw him whip up this mob and the mob go attack people and try to hang his, uh, his vice president. So what he said is right, but I'm not sure that it was right for him to say it in that um, it it puts him in the controversy in a way that's not that helpful. If the court goes his way, it makes him look like maybe he pushed the courts in a certain direction, which is not appropriate. If the court doesn't go his way, he looks weak. So I would prefer that Biden just stay out of this controversy we We have a court system. It should never have gone to the court system. Uh, the, The Senate should have handled this, but we have a court system. They're doing the best they can. I don't think the executive should be weighing in.
1: All right, thank you very much, Van, Steve, Ryan. Appreciate all of you very much. And next, what was caught on tape so horrifically, the three hostages killed by Israeli fighters were recorded, reportedly yelling for help days before they were accidentally shot. And that's not all that was captured on an IDF GoPro. We're live in Tel Aviv next. Plus, Biden making a deal. Ten Americans who've been held in Venezuela prisons are now on their way home after Biden makes a pact with a leader who takes his cues from Vladimir Putin. And where is Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader's wife, raising concerns about her husband, who has now been missing for 15 days?
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number.
10: There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Tonight, a fatal mistake. CNN is learning new details tonight about that shooting death of three Israeli hostages by Israel's own military, the IDF. There's GoPro camera footage that exists, and it's actually from a military K9 dog. So they had put a, a GoPro on that dog. Uh, it, it went into the house where the hostages were. So they guess were are looking for them. You can hear the three hostages, Sarmal Talalka, Yotam Chaim, and Alon Shemriz, five days before their death on this video. They were caught in a firefight between Hamas and the IDF and their voices can be heard on the GoPro footage screaming for help along with cries saying, hostages. Well, the canine was killed by Hamas in that particular attack and of course, those three hostages were killed by the IDF days later. Jeremy Diamond is out front live in Tel Aviv and uh, Jeremy, it's just a whole new level of horror to this story uh, that, that that there was a situation where an Israeli, you know, there, there was a dog, right, with the GoPro footage and the Israeli, the IDF could have known that there were hostages there. Had they seen it or had they watched it or I don't know. What more are you learning about this footage?
10: Yeah, Aaron, especially given the fact that this footage was captured five days before those three hostages were shot and killed mistakenly by Israeli soldiers. This uh, footage was apparently captured uh, during a firefight in which the Israeli military believes that its forces actually killed the Hamas fighters who were uh, holding uh, those three Israelis hostage. And that footage, though, Aaron, was unfortunately only located yesterday after those hostages had already been killed. It's not clear exactly why. Soldiers didn't enter that building at the time to retrieve the dog and to retrieve this GoPro footage. But once the Israeli military analyzed this footage yesterday, they say that they could clearly hear the voices of those three hostages. And this will be a part of the investigation that the Israeli military is conducting. But today also what we heard is the mother of one of those hostages. She recorded a voice uh, message to the uh, soldiers of the unit that was involved in the shooting of her son and those two other hostages. And in it, she tells them not to to blame themselves. Listen.
1: I know that everything that happened is completely not your fault. It's nobody's fault, except the Hamas. May their name and memory be wiped off the face of the earth.
4: We all need you to be safe and sound. Don't hesitate for a single moment. If you see a terrorist,
3: don't think that you have deliberately killed a hostage. You need to protect yourselves, because that's the only way you would be
0: able to protect us.
10: Meanwhile, we are hearing a very different message from the father of another one of the hostages. Uh, Avi uh, Shimriz is saying that the shooter uh, should not have opened fire. Uh, he is also he has also accused the Israeli government of murdering his son. And tonight, he is also delivering a message directly to the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, effectively accusing him of cowardice for not calling or visiting him. Aaron.
1: Mm. All right. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Just a horrible tragedy. Of course, those three men um, did have their shirts off. They were carrying uh, a makeshift white flag. Two of them shot immediately. One of them sought cover and was then shot, uh, even after, of course, speaking in Hebrew by the uh, IDF snipers. So, out front now, retired Army Lieutenant General Mark Kurtling. And General, you know, you fought and led soldiers in combat, deep experience training soldiers, dealing with snipers, dealing with urban warfare. Um, how do you view the IDF? killing these three Israeli hostages. Obviously, with their shirts off and and a white flag, that would be against any norm and their own standards. They've said that. But then you're in the middle of this specific situation in Gaza where it happened.
7: Aaron,
2: you can't tell. I mean, it's interesting to listen to the different responses by both the mother of of, uh, Haim and also the father who was condemning the Israeli soldiers. Yeah. But in any kind of situation in combat, uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the reporting has been that there's been, they were carrying a white flag and they had their shirts off. That doesn't matter, truthfully. It's very difficult in intense combat to figure out who is friend and who is foe. Yeah. In addition to that, the training of individual soldiers like the Israeli soldiers uh, that that were involved in this incident, Uh, You know, it it leads them down a different path depending on the level of training. If they are extremely well-trained, they may hesitate and not shoot at someone approaching them. But we don't know the conditions on the battlefield that particular day. (laughs) Was it an entire firefight? It appears to have been. Was there a lot of smoke or darkness or confusion? And when you're in that situation, the soldiers who had their fingers on the trigger are primarily concerned with their own welfare, defending themselves. And I think that, uh, you know, I had a fratricide incident in one of the units I had. It took us five days to figure out the details of exactly what happened. And, you know, it, it was a training situation again, much like this one. And unfortunately, the soldiers who pulled the soldier, as I understand it, there was one soldier who killed two of the hostages. Uh, that soldier will carry this the rest of his life. It's unfortunate that, that these hostages were killed. That soldier will carry it the rest of his life. The other soldier who fired uh, before the commander gave the, the order to ceasefire will all carry it. The yeah. unit will carry it. The Israeli Defense Forces will carry it and it's an unfortunate situation, this is what happens in combat, unfortunately, sometimes.
1: So, General, it's been more than two weeks since the IDF said it had surrounded Sinwar's home, and it was actually Prime Minister Netanyahu announced it that night, right? Leading to the implication that, you know, they had him. That was sort of the the tone that came in. And then it was, well, no, he wasn't there. Uh, But last night, the Israeli ambassador to the United States told me that they believe that Sinwar is deep in a tunnel inside Gaza. And I explicitly then said, Are you sure he's there? And he said, we believe that he is. Uh, So what do you think their intelligence is? I mean, on some levels, it seems that they know a lot. And on another, it is sort of shocking, given how small Gaza is and how many Israeli eyes have been on it, how little they know.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I saw your interview last night. It was a very good one with the ambassador, Aaron. And what I'd say is they don't know a lot, and they know a lot. It, It describes exactly what you just said. Today a report came out that they found extensive tunnels, and in fact I talked to an Israel, a former Israeli colleague that I knew over there. He said, Mark, you could not believe the amount of tunnel systems that we're seeing right now. It is beyond belief. It isn't just the, the one that Jeremy was in the other day that you could drive through, it goes off in branches in different directions. It's multiple stories. It goes down 50 feet. It was generated by uh, drilling machines that the Israeli army said they haven't even used on the Tel Aviv metro. It goes below the water level uh, after the initial 50 feet. So these tunnels are extensive, they're complex, they're large and and just mind-boggling when the Israelis come in there. So they don't know a lot about these tunnels. And Yaya Sinwa is somewhere in those tunnels. And they can say, hey, we believe he's in there, but they don't really know for sure. So it is a mixed bag of knowledge and lack of knowledge whenever you're dealing with these subterranean tunnels. Uh, facilities like Israel has seen, which no other army in the world has seen, these kind of uh, subterranean uh, facilities.
1: All right. Well, General Hurtling, thank you very much, as always. And next, the Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley seeing new signs of momentum after the state's popular governor, Chris Sununu, endorsed her in New Hampshire. So the crucial question for her now is whether she can catch up to Trump to try to stop him. Governor Sununu is next and Biden striking a deal with a power-hungry leader who's threatened to invade his neighbor in order to free 10 American prisoners. Those Americans are about to land on U.S. soil for the first time in just a few hours. Tonight, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are in Iowa holding town halls right now. They've been crisscrossing the state all day. They're only 26 days until the caucuses. And you're looking right now at live pictures, both of them uh, campaigning at this moment, ramping up their attacks on each other as they try to emerge as the clear alternative to Donald Trump.
9: Haley,
3: no one would even try to say she's a conservative. We know she's not.
1: Every single
4: commercial that Ron DeSantis has put up there has been a lie.
1: All right, all of this coming as Haley is seeing a major surge in New Hampshire, right? The second state to vote. She is in second place there with about 30% of likely Republican primary voters naming her as their first choice. Now, that's nearly tripling her support from September, and it's very important to note that in that state, Trump does not have a majority. He does, 58% in the most recent polling in Iowa, but in New Hampshire, he does not have a majority, Uh, so a very, at least on the poll front... Very competitive looking there after receiving a key endorsement from the state's governor, Chris Sununu, who is out front now. So, Governor Sununu, I really appreciate your time. So, Governor Haley is seeing a clear surge since your endorsement last week. Now, as I pointed out, Trump does not is not polling at a majority in New Hampshire in the most recent polling as he is in Iowa. You don't know how either state will go. But even though Haley has momentum in your state, does she have the time to bridge a 14-point gap with Trump?
5: Oh, without a doubt. Look, I mean, we're notorious for really making up our mind almost at the last minute. So the last three weeks, even between January 1st and the 23rd, um, that's when folks will really start engaging. I've started now a little bit and you can see that momentum. She's the only candidate that has momentum. So, you know, she's getting kind of that earned media. People are starting to really look in her direction. And those that want to see a one-on-one race, which is most people, are really saying, "Okay, this is the path. So the Chris Christie voters are coming over. The Ron DeSantis voters are coming over. She had another poll kind of back. Up the first poll saying that you know she's uh within you know 12, 13, 14 points here, which again sounds like a lot, but for New Hampshire, that's nothing mm-hmm. knowing that everything can change at the last minute.
1: All right, so then the other question is and we talk about the order of the states, right? New Hampshire comes second, uh, you know, and and, and you've got Nevada caucuses and you've got uh, South Carolina, obviously crucial for her, but coming a- down the pipeline after that, does she have to win New Hampshire? To actually move forward to the GOP nomination in a very clear way to voters in those in those next states to vote, does a solid second cut it? Oh no!
5: Uh, yeah. Oh, of course. Look. Donald Trump is the only person that has to win Iowa and New Hampshire because the whole world has been told that he's going to win in a landslide in both states for the last year. So the expectations for him are incredibly high. Mm -hmm. Um, No one expects right now uh, other candidates to win either state. So a solid second would be great. But Nikki, can I think she's going to win here. I mean, I really, really do. Um, With with the voter turnout, which I think is going to be record breaking, um, with the number of conservatives that are galvanizing behind her, those moderates, undeclared voters, whoever it is, everyone is kind of coming Uh, in for Nikki Haley, not just because I say so, that has very little to do with it. She's earning it right? She's doing the town hall. She's bringing the energy. She's showing her conservative credentials, the background she brings, and she's always looking forward. And New Hampshire is a state, um, you know, with respect to Iowa, Iowa does what it does, but New Hampshire always picks the next generation of conservative leadership. That's just our history. And that's the opportunity that folks are going to really galvanize behind, especially with all that momentum. Political momentum is a very real thing. And sometimes it can become a freight train. That's too hard to stop. But I think that's what you're going to see here.
1: So uh, today on the campaign trail, and I was, obviously you've got both, uh, Both governors, uh, Haley and DeSantis, right now, uh, we're looking at live pictures, of course, of of Nikki Haley in Iowa at town halls. But the dominating topic has been the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that kicked Trump off the ballot there uh, for the primary for his actions on January 6th, right, about inciting an insurrection. Now, uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, there has been unanimity among all of them uh, that this was the wrong thing to do. Trump is getting ready to appeal the ruling. The question for you, Governor, is... Is how much is this moment helping Trump and hurting Haley and others, a right? Lot. Because it puts a lot, huh? Yeah. How do you see that?
5: Oh, yeah, no, this, this, This definitely helps Trump. Trump has played this victim card, all right? At his weakest moment in this campaign, the indictments hit and he played the victim card and his numbers went through the roof. So you have Colorado being this, you know, kind of outlier state trying this very bizarre move, which is likely gonna get overturned by the Supreme Court and it should, hopefully it'll just happen quickly so we can get back to it being a one-on-one race between Trump and Haley, because it is, it's just a one-on-one race at this point. Even in Iowa, you know, God bless Ron, he's putting all his chips in on Iowa, Uh, a poll came out today having Nikki uh, clearly uh, alone in second place, even in Iowa. So um, this is a one on one race. But as as soon as we can put this victimization of Trump uh, behind all of us, and he's just going to play that card up as as hard as he can. He never wants to talk about the future. Trump never wants to talk about what he's going to try to do and bring to the table, uh, because then he gets questions about his past, which he can't answer. So he's just going to keep playing this victim card.
1: Hopefully the Supreme Court will put put it behind us quickly. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, Governor Sununu. Good to see you. You bet. And next, 10 Americans freed after Biden strikes a deal with the world leader who's been following in Putin's footsteps, trying to take over half of the country next door on America's next door. So what could this mean for Americans like Paul Whelan, who are being held in Russia tonight? Plus, RFK Jr. shifting to a new strategy, podcasts. And guess what? It's paying off.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It sealed the deal for my vote, for for Mr. Kennedy. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Breaking news. Ten Americans jailed in Venezuela are about to land on American soil for the first time since their imprisonment in just hours. They are part of a prisoner swap that the Biden administration is striking with the authoritarian regime of Nicolas Maduro, the ruler of Venezuela. The U.S. giving uh, up a close ally of Maduro in this trade. And President Biden is defending it.
11: It's okay because
2: it's trade American people who are held illegally. And we made a deal with Venezuela. With the whole free election so far, they've
1: maintained their requirements. And that's it. Ed Lavendera is out front.
3: Ten Americans who've spent months and years imprisoned in Venezuela are on their way back to the United States. State Department officials say six who were officially listed as wrongfully detained by the U.S. government will touch down in San Antonio, Texas tonight. Among them, Joseph Cristella, Avon Hernandez, Daryl Kennemore and Savoy Wright.
6: We have no higher priority
8: than doing everything we possibly can to bring our fellow citizens out of harm's way.
3: Also included in the deal is Leonard Francis, the infamously corrupt military contractor known as Fat Leonard. He was the mastermind of the largest bribery scandal in U.S. Naval history. He fled to Venezuela after his conviction in 2015. The U.S. had eased some economic sanctions against Venezuela as the country took steps to open its elections and agreed to return Alex Saab, an ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Saab was facing prison time in the U.S. on corruption and money laundering charges. The Venezuelan government is also releasing 20 political prisoners, some seen leaving prison by a CNN team in Venezuela. The Biden administration says this deal is a sign of improving relations between the U.S. and Venezuela and part of its effort to push the socialist dictatorship toward more democratic reforms. But the deal comes as the Maduro regime is threatening to take over part of a neighboring country. Guyana sits just east of Venezuela and Maduro wants control of the small country's oil reserves. And a senior administration official says Maduro still faces criminal charges in the U.S., including drug trafficking and corruption. President Biden is vowing to keep the pressure up on the Venezuelan president.
2: Venezuela, thus far, is keeping their commitment toward the democratic election, but we're going to hold them
3: accountable. But this deal sparks renewed frustration for families of some other Americans imprisoned abroad. Paul Whelan has been held in a Russian prison for nearly five years. His brother recently telling out front his family is growing frustrated with the Biden administration.
11: Uh, Unfortunately, I don't see that the uh, government is any closer to bringing Paul home than they were a year ago.
3: But President Vladimir Putin so far is refusing to make a deal for his release. We want to negotiate. The Russian president said last week, we want to negotiate and the agreements must be mutually acceptable and satisfactory to both sides like the one made to release Brittany Griner more than a year ago in exchange for an international arms dealer. But the hope for these other American families is that the U.S. could strike another deal to bring their loved ones back home. And, Aaron, several members of families uh, related to these Americans who will be returning here to San Antonio tonight have released statements saying that they are grateful that their loved one's ordeal is over, that they're grateful to the U.S. uh, government for their efforts in negotiating their release. It's not clear how many of those family members will be here on the ground when when this plane arrives here later tonight. As I mentioned, six of the ten we are expecting to see here at Kelly Field in San Antonio later tonight. We don't have much information on the other four, but we've been told they're being taken to another location. Aaron.
1: All right, Ed, thank you very much in San Antonio where that plane is going to land. I want to go now to Chuck Farr, former member of SEAL Team 6, because he has worked on hostage rescues and negotiations around the world. So, Chuck, talking about this situation here, uh, you know, many in Venezuela consider Alex Saab, who's now going to be released by the United States in this swap, Right of uh, 1 for 10 as, as guilty, uh, an ally of Maduro, guilty of some terrible abuses uh, as part of the Maduro government. What's your reaction to the details as you know them of this swap?
11: Well, I was pretty surprised, actually, that uh, something would come out of Venezuela like this at, at, the, at the present time with uh, Maduro's recent sable, saber rattling. Uh, I was actually surprised uh, that Alex Saab would be, uh, would be given back. He was a member of uh, Maduro's Insider Club. Uh, these are guys that uh, you know uh, purloin Venezuela's natural resources. The grift is measured in the billions. And Alex Saab was uh, en route to Tehran to negotiate a Venezuelan back alley oil deal. Uh, the problem for uh, people like Maduro He can lay hands on all sorts of resources, but he has a very hard time turning them into dollars. And there was definitely some give here in Venezuela. Among the people that uh, have been transferred were two former Green Berets, uh, Luke Deniman and Aidan Berry, who were involved in a failed uh, insurrection attempt back in 2019.
1: Yeah. So, so and you're saying in that front, it's significant. But, you know, amazing when you're looking at a moment where Venezuela has threatened to, you know, militarily invade more than half of its neighboring country in order to get oil reserves. The Biden administration had reduced sanctions on Venezuela, uh, which, you know, all of this playing into this moment. Putin, obviously, is a big supporter of the Maduro regime. Meanwhile, nothing happening there. Paul Whelan, five years imprisoned in Russia, and nothing is happening there. Does this deal mean anything for somebody like Paul Whelan?
11: Well, you know, you've got three uh hostage transactions attracting world attention it's hard to see three points on a map and not draw a triangle Uh, paul whelan is is russia's blue chip hostage and again this is a guy who went for a two-week vacation in uh, russia he spent five years in a labor camp uh he was not traded for uh victor bout who was the international arms dealer sort of uh, exporting misery all around Africa. Uh, but uh, we'll hope Paul will get home for Christmas. But I, I'm not sure I have a lot of a lot of hope.
1: Uh, well, I mean, amazing that you would even put Christmas on that map. I mean, I, I guess even hearing you say that in alone will maybe perhaps give some hope for some sort of a miracle here. But it has been uh, five years that his family has suffered and he has suffered. Chuck, thanks so much.
11: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right. And next, RFK Jr. is building on his support by focusing on podcasts, sort of a totally different track than the other candidates, and it is working. We'll show you exactly what he's doing, why it's resonating, and it has now been 15 days since Putin top critic Alexei Navalny went missing in the Russian penal colony he's in. Tonight, the head of his foundation demands answers. Tonight, RFK Jr. is set to take the stage in moments for a campaign rally in Phoenix. He is polling higher than any third-party or independent candidate in a generation, consistently since early in the spring, holding 20% in a hypothetical three-way race against President Biden and former President Trump. One of his main media strategies is actually going on podcasts. It's a specific strategy. And the question is, how is it working? Lucy Kafanov is out front.
10: Hello, and welcome to Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Uclus.
4: Jordan Uclus, a Colorado venture capitalist and podcaster, says he's voted for Democrats in every presidential election since he's been eligible, until now. So this election,
10: I'm, I'm planning to vote for Bobby Kennedy.
4: Uclus says he experienced a transformation of sorts during the pandemic, which changed not only his political views, but also where he gets his information.
10: Since the pandemic started and I lost trust in a lot of the things that were being told to us by the corporate media. I started to explore more and more alternative sources of media and get more actively involved in things like podcasts. A format he thinks serves Kennedy well. I think one of the reasons that Bobby Kennedy um, is more successful in long form podcasts is because He can uh, articulate his intelligence. If I was just looking at the corporate media presentation of him, I'd probably think he was just a conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer.
5: Thank you all. Thank you very, very much. This campaign is uh, kind of Armageddon, potentially, for the legacy media.
4: Kennedy is open about his online strategy.
5: When we can convince those people to watch a podcast, to watch Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, that they have a very, very high and very quick conversion rate.
4: Since launching his long-shot bid for the White House, first as a Democrat, now as an Independent. It became clear to me that
5: that's what I needed to do.
4: Kennedy has been making the rounds on popular podcasts and live streams.
5: It's a uh, real pleasure meeting you, and thank you so much for hosting this where he's
4: able to reach large audiences while speaking at length, usually without being challenged or fact-checked.
9: Why would we have bio labs in Ukraine?
4: Uh, um, We have bio
5: labs in Ukraine because we're
4: developing bio weapons.
9: So the last podcast we did was
5: censored and removed. Which is clearly a violation of the first amendment. Wi-Fi radiation causes cancer. Yeah, from your cell phone. I mean, there's cell phone tumors.
4: That's the one that cinched it for me was Joe Rogan, 1999. Rosie Aguilar says she hasn't voted in the past several presidential elections. The candidates just didn't excite her. Those are my choices, dumb or dumber. She wasn't planning on voting this year until she listened to Joe Rogan's three-hour-long interview with Kennedy. Joe asked great questions, the questions I would ask, and, you know, Mr. Kennedy responded in a way that made sense to me. Like, wow.
5: I'm going to reboot the GPS.
4: Yeah, I was swayed by RFK Jr. on long-form Podcast form. Kendra Wilson was initially interested in Kennedy too.
5: We're ten times more likely to die over the next three months than girls.
4: But the more she saw of Kennedy on the campaign trail, the less she liked. And it wasn't until I saw the rallies and the Zoom event and I'm like, God, everybody's white here. Like, this isn't a solution to anything. You know, I hear him talking about all this unity, but what I see is not unity. For a far-outside-the-mainstream candidate like Kennedy, this is a strategy that frankly makes sense. He can bypass the gatekeepers and fact-checkers. He also ends up reaching large and engaged audiences. And while the supporters that we met, Erin, have been extremely enthusiastic about him, which is no small feat, frankly, in this election, uh, it remains to be seen whether the so-called podcast demographic will actually turn out on Election Day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, unbelievable. It's, it's fascinating. And to come up with a totally different strategy as well that he's, at least so far, uh, obviously executing on. Thanks so much, Lucy. And next, pressure growing for answers as it has now been 15 days since Alexei Navalny went missing. Tonight, where is Alexei Navalny? A question he and his, his family and his top aide, Maria Pevchik, Frequent guests on Out Front, they're asking now, pounding the table, saying for 15 days we don't know where Alexei Navalny is or what is happening to him. Navalny leaving a Russian penal colony just over two weeks ago. His team's concerned he's being transferred to another distant and even worse penal colony, but they don't know if he's alive or not. The wife of another imprisoned Putin critic, Vladimir Karamurza, had this warning about prison transfers.
9: The next step is the transfer. And uh, this is a very dangerous period. They tend to lose prisoners during transfer.
1: Tomorrow night, Navalny's daughter, Dasha, will be out front. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us. Anderson starts now.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.